what we're going to do today is we're going to continue in the book of Mark. And so we're in Mark chapter 9 this morning is where we're going to turn. Verses 14 through 29 we're going to cover today. And uh, before we do that, we're going to pray. And our desire when we talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change is not just that people will come to this church and be connected. But we want our city to be transformed. And we know we own a piece of property. We're messing around right now with the DOT, waiting for them to tell us whether they're buying it from us and all that kind of stuff. Um, but our goal, even if we build a building, isn't to fill up a place. We want a city to be reached for Jesus Christ. And so we know that takes more than just one church. I was texting last night with our, he was our shepherding pastor. Most of you know him, Jason Tovey. He's preaching his second sermon today at the church that he's pastoring. He's a senior pastor now up in Grand, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Granville Baptist Church. He's preaching on the bread of life. And so let's pray for him this morning. And pray for some of the other churches in our city that preach the gospel. And there are other churches where God's changing people's lives. We believe what he's doing here is special, but it's not the only place that God's at work. And we don't want it to be. We want there to be multiple places. And so let's just pray for believers uh, together today as a church family, us, but then believers that are meeting around the world, around the city. Um, let's pray together. Father, we come before you. I pray right now. I pray for Pastor Jason as he's preaching at his church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, just down the street from the church that we planted uh, where Pastor Josh is at. I pray, God, that you would anoint both their lips with the words you want for those bodies. And I pray for the church in Madagascar, that there'll be a bunch of churches that have been planted from our missionaries that went there. I pray that even they're preaching a different language, the same message. And I pray that lives will be changed. I pray people will be saved. I pray that bondages will be broken. Some different bondages than we deal with, but I pray you do that. I pray for Matt and Misty Headspath, who are in Panama, trying to start an orphanage there and reach out to the kids that are there. I pray that people in that community would see them being the hands and feet of Jesus and be drawn to you. And I pray as they meet together with believers today that you would encourage their hearts. And I pray for uh, Imago Day Church that's meeting. I pray, God, for Pastor Tony that you give him the message. I pray for Journey Church. And I pray for the churches. That, there are many churches I don't even know their names. I, I don't even, I don't, I've met the pastor here. I've been talking to the pastor here at Leesville Baptist. I pray, God, that you would even work in that, that church that's right around the corner from us and Providence with their new pastor. I pray that you'd bless that church and give them unity. And uh, people that have been following the leadership of Pastor Horner for so many years, I pray that they would be excited about the vision and the, and the work that you're doing in the life of their new pastor. And, and I pray for a journey church. And I just pray the gospel would go forth in our city and that our neighborhoods would be changed and our marriages would be transformed and the lives of people that we wouldn't play games about religion and just learn Bible verses, that we would be transformed and we'd look more like your son Jesus Christ and that more people would be drawn to him God, take us into a, a deeper relationship with you, those of us who know you this morning. And for those of us who don't know you, I pray, God, that you'd bring them to salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are very blessed that God's been changing lives in our church. We're blessed that we have a place to meet. There's a lot of reasons that there's blessings in our life. And if I just say the term blessing to you, what do you think of? God? Food, somebody said? I think it depends on what kind of food. Not kale from last week. There's different things you probably think. If I said to you, some of you, you take notes, and maybe you've got the insert on there that tells you to take notes. If I said, write down your top five blessings, and some of you might actually do that, what would you write down? Some of you, it doesn't matter what I say, you're not going to write anything down today, so it doesn't matter. But what would be the 10? Like, just think about it in your mind. What would be the top 10 blessings or the top five blessings in your life that you think of? And if you want to know what many people think of when they talk about blessings, just go on any of the social media outlets, type in hashtag blessed. See what comes up. Some of you have done this. You're, you're awing. Oh, man, those blessings. Somebody gets a new car. Hashtag blessed. Somebody gets a new job. Hashtag blessed. They get a raise at their job. Hashtag blessed. You'll see parents sometimes, their kids go to sleep, and they take a picture of their kid. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> and I think when they're new parents, why aren't you sleeping? Like, why are you taking pictures of the kid? You see various things that happen in our lives, and we think of them as a blessing. And so you'll say, hashtag blessed. There's one that's notorious. 
And I think it's designed just to make me jealous. You've seen it before. It's somebody takes a picture of their feet and there's a backdrop. Sometimes there's mountains, oftentimes there's water. It says, my view at the office today. Hashtag blessed. But there's one I bet you've probably never seen. Have you ever seen somebody, when somebody gets a new car, hashtag blessed. When somebody wrecks the car, do you ever see the hashtag blessed? Don't have to worry about that car anymore. Somebody gets a new job, hashtag blessed. I lost my job. Unless they really hated their job, probably not putting hashtag blessed. What we're talking about today is failure. The blessing of failure. Which if that's true, that failure can be a blessing, that's incredible news for us. Because think about this. We all fail in a lot of different ways in all kinds of areas of life. We fail to keep promises. We fail in relationships. We fail at experiments. We fail tests. We fail in college tests. We fail tests just in general life. We fail tests at work. We fail in our church. We fail in marriages. We fail all over the place. In fact, we could probably create new ways to fail. We're so good at failing. But some people don't like to talk about it. Some folks like to call it other things. I saw a quote this week by Thomas Edison. He said, I have not failed. I've just come up with 10,000 ways that don't work. You can call it whatever you want. But we fail. But most people don't celebrate failure. I I saw a story this week. I'm not saying you should play the lottery. Don't email me about this. But I I did see the story of a woman who picked the right numbers for the lottery. She knew that because she wrote them down. Then her husband threw the lottery ticket away. That is a major fail, by the way. But I don't think they probably put on on any kind of social media, Facebook, whatever. Hashtag blast. We threw the ticket away. Or someone got diagnosed with a disease. Hashtag blast. Car got wrecked, lost a job, failed in the marriage, failed at, keep going back to the same sin, fail, 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 fail. But today I want to tell you that failure can be a blessing. In fact, Jesus never tells you in the scriptures that his goal for you is to accomplish a bunch of spiritual accomplishments or a bunch of achievements so that you'd be blessed are the successful. You don't see that in the Bible. In fact, you don't see blessed are the failures either though. But you do see statements like this, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And oftentimes what God uses as a vehicle to get us to the place to be poor in spirit, to get us to the place of mourning, is failure. And so today we're going to talk about the blessing of failure. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. If you have a copy of the scripture, please join me there. Mark chapter 9. And we're going to look at it verses 14 through 29 today. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we give them away on the back table just on your way out. And you can even get up right now. It doesn't bother me. Go grab a copy of the Bible. Matthew, or Mark chapter 4, or 9, sorry. Mark chapter 9. Uh, we'll look at verses 14 through 19 together. Eventually we'll get to 29. But what's happening here is really a contrast from what we saw last week. In Mark chapter 9, what happens at the beginning is that Jesus is encouraging the disciples because he's a good shepherd and he knows they need encouragement. Because of what happened in Mark chapter 8, which is really the setup for this entire section of the book of Mark. From Mark chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to Mark chapter 10, and verse 52, he's talking about the same thing. What does it look like to follow him? And there's no such thing as a follower of Jesus who doesn't follow. So what he's really saying is, what does it look like to be a Christian? And he says, if anyone, anyone there that day, anyone throughout history, anyone's going to follow me, must deny themselves. No one wants to do that. Take up their cross. I don't want a cross. And follow me. Well, that's what it means to follow you. I'd like to follow you. Skip the first two. Nope, can't do it. So what does it look like? Well, it's tough. And he gives some different analogies that are really hard teaching. What, is it, what, profit, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? No profit, by the way. That's a loss. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. You can't buy it back. Hard teaching. And so he knows that with his disciples. 
So in chapter 9, what he does, he says, some of you, not all of them, but some of you, and he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain, are going to see a glimpse of my glory. And he takes them up to get a glimpse of his glory. And last week we talked about it was such amazing glory that the authors of the Bible couldn't even describe it. And so Mark says that he shined like his clothes were brighter than anyone could bleach them. And Luke said it was like lightning. And Matthew said it was like, like the, sh- the sun was shining through his face and he was transfigured to his pre-incarnate state. In other words, they didn't know how to describe what they saw. But it was an amazing experience. And we talked about how we'd love to live on the mountaintop. But as long as we're here, God's got us on a mission. And the mission isn't lived on the mountaintop. It's great that God gives us those glimpses of his glory. It charges us up so we can keep going. But the mission's lived oftentimes in the valley, in the darkness, where there's sin and where there's pain. And what we have in this passage is total contrast of last week. Last week, they're on the mountaintop. This week, they're in the valley. They come down from the mountain. Last week, they saw the glory. They're in the light. He's stepping right into darkness. Last week, victory. Let me show you my glory. This week, fail. Major fail. In fact, everybody in our passage not named Jesus has a failure today. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the three disciples. There's nine other guys there. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law, remember those are the opponents of Jesus, they're following him around, they teach the scriptures, and they're trying to trap him and make him look bad. The teachers of the law, arguing with them. Verse 15, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So they were not interested in this argument. But Jesus, his first words in this passage are, what are you arguing with them about? He asked. Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. They failed. And Jesus, oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Here in this passage, everybody not named Jesus has a major fail. He says in verse 19 that we just read, the whole generation has, oh, sinful, adulterous generation because of their spiritual adultery, because they worship things other than the creator, they worship creation. Failure of faith. In a minute, we're going to see that the father's faith has failed, but the focus in this passage is really on the disciples' faith because the whole section remembers about what does it mean to follow him and how did they fail? Well, they failed casting out a demon. Let's give them a break, right? I mean, if you came to me in the lobby today and said, oh, Pastor Scott, I had a rough week, tried to cast out this demon, it didn't work, I'd probably be pretty gracious with you. That's okay. I mean, that's, that's cool. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't expect you to have victory. And that's a tough situation. But we know these disciples have been given authority, Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6, to cast out demons. Not only have they been given authority, they've actually had success doing this already in the book. Mark chapter 6, verse 13 They drove out many demons and anointed many sick with oil and healed them. And that's probably the problem. They've had past success. And they're trusting in their past success rather than living by faith in this moment. And so here they are thinking they can do this. Let me ask you a question. You lead somebody to Jesus as their Savior. The next time you share Jesus with someone, do you got that? You got that under control because you can do that? You get victory over sin in your life because God gives you victory because you trust him by faith. Then the next sin that you go to deal with, because trust me, there's more. (laughs) I remember when I first became a Christian, I thought there were two things, just two things, and I'd be a great Christian. (laughs) Oh, is he gracious not to reveal everything? (laughs) God's continually doing a work on us. 
once you have one thing down, doesn't mean that you don't need faith for the future. When you start depending on your faith from the past, you are set up for failure. They ask the question at the end here, why couldn't we do this? Well, because you're not able to do this. He's given you authority, but that authority is based on you trusting in him because he's the one who does the work. And so it's their failure that's actually the opportunity God uses to grow their faith. God oftentimes uses our times of failure to grow our faith. God oftentimes uses our failure, that's why failure is a blessing, to grow our faith. And you know what? Many of us have lots of opportunities for God to grow our faith because we've got lots of failure. We fail in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small. But just even the fact, if you are a Christian, you are an admitted failure, just so you know. I remember I wrote that in a paper one time, and I had to give an oral uh, defense of the paper that I wrote before some people that had degrees in being a Christian. And one of the guys said, what are you talking about? Admitted failure. And I said, well, Romans 3.23, we all sin, fall short of the glory of God. God's got a standard. We don't meet it. We fail. He didn't like that. I think it pricked his pride. But it must be true because I still passed. (laughs) But we're all admitted failures. We all admit by, by virtue of becoming a Christian, you're admitting that you can't do it. You need help. You need a Savior. If you haven't admitted your failure, you can't be a Christian. You've got to acknowledge your sin before him, but that he's, done, he's actually got the victory. He's actually fulfilled the law. He is the one who died in your place, and then you trust him. You think about big failures? Big fa- Go to the beginning of the Bible. Failure and opportunity for faith. Adam and Eve, they're living in the garden. It's perfect, perfect harmony. They've got one rule. Don't eat of the tree. They eat of the tree. You've got one rule. Fail, major failure. But you know what it is? An opportunity for faith. Because now they realize, hey, we couldn't keep that one law. Then God's going to give more law. And no one can keep it. We need you, God. We need you to do something. We need you to come and keep the law yourself. Because we can't even have a person do it. Because one person can only have one person. I need, we need God to do it. So God comes and he dies, Jesus. And then everyone who becomes a Christian is an admitted failure. Here's the problem, though. Many of us live like we need a Jesus at the point of our salvation. But the rest of this Christian life, that's on us. And we live like we need faith at the beginning. We were helpless. We were humble. We were vulnerable. We called out for a savior. But now I got to be a good little boy, good little girl. Now I've got to do, now this is on me. We don't want to say that out loud, but that's how we live. I've got to clean up my act. I've got to stop, blank, 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 whatever sins are there. And now you're set up for failure, which is great news because that's when God works to grow your faith. And what we see in this passage, these guys, before you even get to the point of the demon-possessed boy or any of that stuff, you see that they have failed in a huge way. The very first verse here, it says they're arguing. The fact that they're arguing, and what we're going to see in verse 17, is they're arguing with some religious people while there's somebody there that has a real need. What a picture of the church so many times. We're going to have these religious arguments, we're going to, whether another religious organization within a family argument within ourselves, and we get, we get focused on this stupid stuff, and then people start thinking to themselves, well, I don't, I don't need to go to a place just so they can tell me what to think, how to vote, how to dress. I need real, I've got real problems. It made me think of a story that I read, and some of you may have heard it before. It's in a book, the book's a little bit older now, Philip Yancey wrote, called What's So Amazing About Grace? And in that book, at the very beginning, uh, he tells a story of a woman who's terrible situation in her life. She's meeting with a counselor in Chicago. She's sharing with the counselor all the stuff that's going on in her life. And uh, she's a prostitute. She's unable to feed uh, herself, her child. She's got a drug addiction that she's using all of her money for. And she shares with this counselor that she's renting out her two-year-old because she can make more money doing that than renting out herself. And the counselor, I mean, the counselors hear all kinds of stuff. The counselor didn't know what to say to her. 
He knew he was responsible to report this, but he wanted to give her some words of hope, and he, he just asked the question. He said, have you thought about going to church? And then she says, and this is why the story stuck with me, church? Why would I go to church? I feel bad enough about myself already. They just make me feel worse. Now, here's the reality. What she's doing is wrong, and there's a place for conviction. You don't just come to church and you feel good. I don't know. It's nice. But she didn't see the church as a place with real answers. Why? How many times are we like that? And we just want to get you to vote this way. We just want to get you to dress this way. We just want to get you to like the things that we like and think things so we can feel good about us. We're not really concerned about their problems. I was meeting with some members this week. We were having lunch. And they asked me, I said, is the, how is the church? You know, nine years ago you came here and planted this church. Is it what you thought it would be? I was like, how could I have known? Like we were just talking. I said, what, what do you think of the, how, What do you think of where we're at? And I said, one of the things I think is so special about our church is that God's assembled people, different stories. Some of them weren't Christians. Some of them were Christians, were kind of fed up with the church. Some people were burned by the church and various stories. But it's people that didn't want to play religious games anymore. And so what they want is to be serious about their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's not just a religious organization, is not what I feel like this church is, but it's a bunch of people in relationship with each other that wanted to go deeper in the relationship with Jesus and want other people to experience that. So what it allows us to do is not argue about a bunch of the dumb crap. And if you're caught up in that statement, please don't. But like what kind of music to listen to, how to dress, whether you, you know, the finer points of our theologies, well, I can't fellowship with you because you use the wrong version. It's a version, okay? You know, it's whatever. We get caught up in all this stuff. What do you, if you did a survey of our church, do you know how many different denominational backgrounds you'd find? Do you know how many different political views you would find? And some of you would be really bothered if you knew that. But the reason why you don't know that is because we make such a big deal about the main thing, which is Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why we do stuff like Southbridge Serves. That's why we want everybody to serve. Because there are people in our community, we're going to go serve police officers, and we're going to serve people different schools at this school, and Pine Hollow, or the, uh, Sycamore Creek, and Briar Creek, and all the schools. Because we want those teachers, and the families, and the custodians, and all the administrators, all those people, to go, I'm, I don't even not go to your church, but if I went to church, I'd want to go to a church like yours. Because this seems to actually make a difference in your life. It's not just like some pep rally of people all think the same thing and have the same background and like the same music. But it seems like Jesus is doing something. That's the hope. And that's why I want you all to sign up. Hopefully God's done a work in your life. You want other people to see that and do something to serve them. And here, these guys, they've blown it because they're, they're arguing, well, there's a person sitting right there with real needs. They're critics. They've been critics for, of them throughout this, the Gospels. Jesus has his critics. If Jesus has critics. Guess what? You're going to have critics. Best thing you can do with most of the critics, ignore them. They get caught up. Now they're distracted, and there's this argument that's happening. No one cares about the argument. As soon as Jesus says, what are you arguing with them about? They must keep arguing and trying to make their point. But the father's who we focus in on, verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you, not them, I brought you, my son. And here's his condition. He's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. So just think about that for a moment. Luke adds to the, the vibe of what's happening here when he tells us this is this man's only son. You'll notice as we read the passage, the mom's not mentioned. I don't know the mom. I don't know what happened to her, but she's not there. Maybe she's gone because things got really tough. It's this man and his boy, and his boy can't even speak. So try and imagine being his parent, and we're going to see his condition. It's very descriptive in Mark's account of all of this happening in his condition. But no matter what you do as his dad, he will never say back to you, I love you too, dad. 
Thanks, Dad. And what makes it really bad is the reason why. It's not just that he has a speech impediment. It's not just that he has cancer of the tongue. It's not that he has some disease or sickness or special need. And those of you who have kids with special needs, I don't mean this to be insensitive to you at all. People probably say dumb things to you. And people probably have, they don't know, they don't know what it's like for you to constant care. They don't understand that. But I promise you, most people have compassion for the situation. Who has compassion when they find out that the reason why the boy is this way is because he's demon-possessed? Can you imagine being this father? What's wrong with your son? He's demon-possessed. And the looks you get from religious people. Oh, what are you doing at your house that your son becomes demon-possessed? Why is God punishing you? We've not, you you've, if you've been at this church, you know I've taught many times that many people in this time believed that if you had a, a sickness, it could be a regular sickness, you could be blind or can't speak, not demon possession, that they thought it was judgment from God. So of course they think that demon possession is judgment from God. So he's not getting compassion. He's alone. His son can't even speak to him. What's the situation like? Well, look at it. We'll jump over verse 19. We already read that. Verse 20. Jesus said, bring the boy to me in verse 19. And so they brought him. And then what happens? When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. He became rigid. The description here is much like epilepsy, plus he can't speak, and it's the constant torment of demon possession. And Jesus asked the boy's father. Interesting that he asked the boy's father a question. Because here's this boy, he's convulsing, his body's rigid, he's foaming at the mouth, he's convulsing, and he looks at the dad. And look at the question. How long has he been like this? And if, if you read it without hearing any tone, it's almost like a doctor, like getting a diagnosis. Like, so how long, dad, is the, like trying to get the patient history here? Let me tell you, Jesus isn't going to give him antibiotics. There's no therapy that's going to happen, and spoiler alert, he's going to heal this kid. But what he's doing by addressing the father is he's showing his compassion. Jesus already knows the answer to this question. He knows how long this boy's been like this. He's showing the father, I hear you and I care about you. Can I tell you something? In your pain, whatever it is in your life, Nikki said, who's the the first person to hurt you? Whatever your pain is, Jesus hears you and he cares about you. He knows your pain and he feels your pain. He's got sympathy. He's got compassion. He's showing to this man something this man probably has not experienced in this situation. What's wrong with your kid? He's demon-possessed. We want out of here. Jesus, how long has he been like this? Tell me about your pain. Look what the dad says. From childhood, he answered. Not from birth. So what are those memories like for the dad? However few they are. Before the boy was like this. This is from childhood, he answered. And then he describes more what's happened to this kid and what their life has been like. It's often, often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Now, in the first century, it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be open flames and the boy would be out of control. Something would take over and he would run into the fire and he'd run into the water. How many times has this dad pulled his son out of the water, rescued him from drowning, given him CPR, he'd gotten the water out of his lungs, whatever he does, and the boy can't even say thanks. How many times has he thrown in the fire? And I've preached this passage multiple times. A few times out of Mark. I've preached this in Luke as well. And I've always thought, I wonder if this kid even had any hair. Has it all been burned off? 
Yeah, I remember I've had friends that had severe burns before and see what that's like. Fingers maybe melted together. What are the scars like for this kid? But last week I had an experience that really brought this passage to life for me. I ended up spending some time with a friend of mine who was in a, a bad fire earlier this past year. He's a pastor, and it was right before Easter this past year. He was at home. He's got four kids. One of his kids was with his wife and four kids. I don't know if that's like a pastor thing or what, but he had four kids, and they were at the house, three of them, and he was making some food, and he went to the, the oven and the, it was a, or the stove, and the stove had a gas burner on it, and there was a grease fire. It was what ended up happening. He said, I went, and I started to, when I started to stir the food, it was just whoosh, and his whole body caught on fire. And he was wearing some workout clothes, polyester. They just burned right to his body. He was on fire, and he thought his whole house was going to burn down. He started screaming, trying to rub on this couch, trying to get his kids out of the He got his kids out of the house, ended up out in the front yard, on the ground, smothered the fire, but it burned his whole body, his hand, different spots. And this was about six months ago. And this was the first time I had seen him since this had happened. And when I saw him, he came walking up. I said, you know, can I hug you? Like, I wasn't even sure if I could. And we hugged, but very gently. And he started showing me he had compression gear on. He showed me his scars. He was wearing a compression thing on his hand. He showed me a scar on his hand all over his body. Told me about the surgeries he had, the surgery he was going to have. But then he started to tell me stuff I had never thought about before. He told me, he said, it still hurts. The burn still hurts six months later. He said, they're especially bad when it's hot outside. And he talked about going to his kids' soccer games and football games and some of those things. And then he said... One of the things that he, I hadn't, hadn't even crossed my mind was the emotional trauma that that caused. So he's a pastor, and he said, the first time I baptized somebody after the fire had taken place, I must have asked the guy in the back 30 times whether there was chlorine in the water because I was so stressed that maybe there was chlorine and it was going to make the burns feel so bad. He talked about how he laid in bed with medications, you know, Benadryl, all the stuff that we have now, and there was one night where he just could, it was so bad, like constant torment, the burns. And I think about this kid. It's not just one fire. Oftentimes, it's thrown him into the fire. He doesn't have the surgeries we have. Doesn't have the medication. There's no compression gear for him to wear. How bad it was for my friend, and how bad it must be for this kid, and the kid can't even say anything about it. And the dad's watching it, and how helpless the dad must feel. And when you think about that, it makes sense what he says next. But if you can do anything. And notice, the dad doesn't ask for healing. He just says, anything. Like, that's the word that gets me here. It's thrown him into the fire, it's thrown in the water, it's tried to kill him, and we know we have an enemy that wants to destroy us. We've already heard testimonies of that today. But if you can do anything, take pity, not on him, on us. This is hard on all of us. Help us. If you can do anything, like, if you could give me one night's rest, Jesus, anything, I'd take any help. If you could have him just respond one time and say thanks, that would give me so much energy. If you could just heal some of the wounds, anything. And pause as we think about the story. And as you just read through Mark and as you're studying the Bible, this is a ridiculous statement. Because if there's anything you shouldn't question at this point in the book of Mark, it's Jesus' ability. As you think about what we talked about in the first section, those of you who are with us in the first section of Mark, it says, who is this Jesus? Well, Jesus, we see the words and works of Jesus. We see he loves without limits. He loves people that are unlovable. He forgives people that don't deserve forgiving. He, we saw how Jesus is stronger. And you start to look at casting out demons, healing lepers. There's a guy who can't walk. He says, get up. And just the word of his mouth, the guy who goes from being lame to skipping out of the room. 
You see him do feedings. You see him do blind eyes. It's all this stuff. Probably my two favorite out of looking at how, how Jesus is stronger than all these different things. Are, are, the one was with uh, Mark chapter 4 when there's a storm. It's basically like a hurricane. They're in the eye of the hurricane. And Jesus meets you there, by the way. And these fishermen, professional guys on the sea, are panicking, crying out like little girls, and waking Jesus up. Note he was sleeping. He was fine with what was happening. They wake him up, and he says, shh, wind, shh, waves. Now these dudes are really terrified because the water's glassy smooth, and it happened because the dude that was in the boat. And so they ask, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Exactly. He's able. But then it's the next story I think that really gets me. I think that's the one I like the most. But then I go back to the storm. Jesus is stronger than the storm. He's stronger than enemies. He's stronger than disease. He's stronger than death. He raises a kid from the dead. But in Mark chapter 5, there's this guy that's demon-possessed. And it says that no one can even contain this guy. In Mark chapter 5, it says it like this. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was, and here's the line I love, no one was strong enough to subdue him. And so it's like Kobe Bryant. Can't stop him, just contain him. They can't even contain him. Here's this guy. They're not trying to fix this demon-possessed guy. They can't even hold him down. They've put chains on him. He breaks the chains. No one can subdue it. No one's strong enough. And what Jesus does, the word of his mouth shows he's stronger. And he takes the demons, the legion of demons in that man, casts them into some pigs. And that guy's, if there's anything you don't need to question, it's Jesus' ability. But this guy is so shaken to his core that he does. And the failure of the disciples didn't help. The years since childhood, the years of experience with this, and all the doctors he's tried, and all the different stuff they've probably tried, doesn't help. All the failure up to this point has brought him to this place where he even says of Jesus, if you could just like do something, anything. And some of you know what that's like. Because you know what the Bible says. You know the testimonies you hear from other people. But when you've lost hope, it's really hard to get hope back. When your spouse leaves, to have hope that the marriage is going to be okay, it's really hard to be there. When you're told you're going to die... It's really hard to have hope. When you keep going back to the same sin over and over and over, it's really hard to have hope. And that's where this guy's at. If you can do anything. And then Jesus responds, knowing what I just shared with you, what Jesus has done up until this point in his ministry, the next statement makes sense that Jesus says in verse 23. And you've got to hear the tone. If you can. If you can. What's in question here is not actually Jesus' ability. It's this man's ability to believe. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Those are words of hope that have encouraged hearts for years and years. Here's the problem with them. They don't mean what you sometimes hear motivational speakers say, TV preachers say, prosperity gospel pastors say, that if you just believed enough, then you'd have what you'd believe in. If you just believed it, then you would receive it. It's catchy, just not true. And so what ends up happening is people get sick, and then they get told, well, you're sick because you don't believe enough. As if it's your fault. 
You got that because you just don't believe for enough money. Because if you just believe in it, isn't it interesting? It's only the guy who's preaching it that it's working for. Anyway, what this actually means is that the faith that God's taking you to, that he desires for you to have, is a faith that puts no limits on him. It's no, no doubt in his ability. That's why he says the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's that God's able to do more than we could ask or imagine. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's not one thing he can't do. That doesn't mean that you can manipulate him by believing it enough. He's not that small. But he's able. And what he wants you to do is in the failure, he wants you to believe in him more, trust him more. See, his goal in your life is not to strengthen you so you can be independent. He wants to grow your faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so it's in our failure, he tries to grow our faith. And that's why this man is at such a great place because the next verse is the key to understanding the entire passage, which isn't here to teach the man. It's not here about the boy. It's for the disciples because he's teaching them how to follow. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe... Help me overcome my unbelief. This guy's so helpless. If you can do anything, like if you could help in some way, we just have to believe. I do believe. But I can't even believe if you don't help me. And it seems like those two statements are contradictory. Like you believe, but you don't believe. But anybody who's had genuine faith knows that oftentimes genuine faith is mixed with our doubts. We've all got doubts. You might not doubt that Jesus died for your sins. You don't doubt that he rose from the dead, but you doubt, why are these things happening in my life? How does this, how could he, and if he's good, then why? That's, that's part of the faith journey. That's where this guy's at. He believed some or he wouldn't be there. When he came, he wasn't coming for the disciples. He said, I brought my boy to you. But you weren't here. You just got to believe in me. I do believe, but I'm so helpless. I can't even believe if you don't help me believe. So this guy's at a great, it's a terrible and fabulous place to be. Because he's at a place of humility, he's at a place of vulnerability, he's at a place of helplessness, he's at a place of failure. And it's at that place of failure that God begins to work to then grow our faith. So you pray for brokenness and see what God does. He'll bring you to a place where you come to the end of yourself. What is it that's happening in this passage? How do you follow him? You've got to come to the end of yourself. Deny yourself. Say no to you. You can't do this. You're not going to be able to. You renounce yourself and you say yes to the cross, the cross that he gives you, which is your obedience to him. And then follow him, which means it's trust in him. The problem for the disciples, they were trying to do it on their own. The problem for this guy, lots of failure, but the success, he realizes he can't do it. I can't even believe on my own. I've been praying for brokenness in my own life. A few weeks ago, I shared with you, we were teaching, I was doing Romans 12, it was before we got into this series, and I shared with you as a church, I don't even want to grow because growth is painful. I was just being, I felt like a hypocrite teaching you about spiritual growth, and the day before, I just went to pray. It wasn't like a written out prayer. It's like, God, I hate growth. And I hated growth because it hurts. And then last week, I'm sit, I, the sermon was ready. I was watching football with my kids. They're, I was watching my one daughter watch me, and she didn't know that I was watching her watch me, but we were watching each other watch each other. Have you ever done that? <laughs> What's going on? And I was thinking to myself, we're here as a family, but I'm not really here. I don't know if you've ever done that or not. I'm physically present, but I was not mentally engaged because there was a battle that was going on in my mind. And I've shared with you before that we all have these lies that we'll hear periodically, lies that we live by. It's the enemy. He's trying to steal from me. He's trying to steal his time from me with my family. 
And I was engaged in this. And, and part of the lie was, and I, we are a church that talks all the time about it's okay to not be okay. But the way that I'll sometimes function in my own life is it's okay for all of them to not be okay, but I got to be okay because then I got to share answers with them. And so there's stuff that was going on. And I just felt, I got I to get everything fixed. I got everything right. What's not right? And this anxiety is raising up in me and I'm sitting here but pretending like I'm having a good time with the family. Eventually I snuck off on my own. And I asked God to speak to my heart. And the way that God speaks to our hearts is through the scriptures. And he took me to a passage of scripture. I had just preached to the church, uh, to us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and where it talks about that we're a new creation in Christ, that old is gone, that new has come, and it's about our salvation. But then in chapter 6, I, I didn't preach that part, and this is where God really convicted my heart. Chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul says to those people that are new creations, he says, but don't receive the Lord's grace in vain. Don't receive the grace in emptiness. Don't make that grace meaningless. What does that mean? I think that it means, the best I can tell so far in my study of it, it's when you trust Jesus for your salvation, chapter 5, but then you live like the rest of it's on you, which is what I was doing. I got to be okay. I got to make it okay. So how do I make it okay? And what God was doing was taking me to a place where he starts to make me feel, it's okay that you're not okay. Because then you need my grace. Then you're weak. Be vulnerable. And you continue to read chapter 6, and Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, we open our hearts, you open your hearts. Be vulnerable. Be open. Look by faith. See, if you can do everything in your life that you're trying to do, you're not living by faith, just so you know. And so I dare you to pray for brokenness. I dare you to pray, God, take me to the end of myself. Like Peter, when he gets out of the boat and he's walking on water for a little while. He can't do that. But he's living by faith. And he fails. I get it. And you'll fail. And I'll fail. But he was living by faith. He failed. See, a lot of us, we're not going to fail because we don't do anything. But you, you do something, you're going to fail. And then God will meet you in that failure, and that's the moment that he grows your faith. Because God's goal for you is not your strength, it's your faith to be grown. That's why he says it's in your weaknesses he's made known. You look at the scriptures and you see death always comes before resurrection. Have you noticed that? Jerry's daughter dies before she's raised. Lazarus before he dies before he's raised. You see, and you see weakness before you see strength. And what you end up seeing is emptiness before you see filling. And he wants to empty you of you so he can fill you with himself. And so that's why you see stories like Gideon. Gideon's going to fight a battle. And what does God say to Gideon? Hey, you've got too many men. <laughs> I think I'm good, God. I'll take these guys. No, we're going to whittle that down so that you're weak. So when you win, I get the glory, not you. Hey, Joshua, here's an idea. Let's try this experiment. You're going to go to battle with no weapons. <laughs> no, we're good. But then when I win, it's clear that I won. Moses is going to lead your people out into the promised land. First, I'm going to take you to the Red Sea, and you're going to stand on the Red Sea, and at the last moment, when it seems like there's nowhere to go, and the people that have been holding you in bondage for 400 years are about to destroy you, then I'll part the water. Do you think they felt weak for a moment? And you look at what Paul says. Paul writes a bunch of the Bible. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. We don't want you to be uninformed. So he, does, he doesn't want to go through this experience and not have this church be informed by it. Because he cares about them, brothers. About the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. God gave us more than we could handle. So that here's where we were at. We despaired even of life. We wanted to die. The guy writes a bunch of the Bible. And he was having thoughts about death. Not just glorious thoughts. He just wants this to be over. He says in verse 9, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. 
Why did it happen? But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Who raises the dead? We want death, but we've got a God who can actually raise us from the dead. He is able to do everything. And, and what we came to was an idea of our inability later in 2 Corinthians. He has a mountaintop experience. You can read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12. He, go, he has an amazing experience that's hard to even describe with words, much like the transfiguration. But then he says, Satan gave me a thorn in my flesh. It was Satan that gave the thorn in the flesh. And so some of you, the worst thing that's happened in your life came from the enemy, just so you know. It wasn't God's doing. And then he prayed, God, take it away. And God said, no. That's confusing. He said, because he's going to use it for Paul's good. So he can take even the greatest pain in your life, the most difficult thing that's happened to you, and overrule what Satan has done and use it for your good. And so Paul says, I prayed that God would take it away. And three times I asked, he said, no. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Let me put another phrase on that. It's no longer about me, deny myself. And I'll become obedient even to, cro to a cross. This is my cross. This thorn in the flesh was his cross. Not because it was difficult, not because it was some pain, because it was his act of obedience to submit to it. And that's what it was for him to follow Jesus. See, this guy's in a great spot because he's at this spot where he realizes, I can't do this. I was reading this week about failure, and I saw a blog, I had a friend send me a blog actually, about a pastor who failed. And I hope right now you don't start thinking to yourself, which pastor is it? And it was a famous pastor. He was writing a book a year and ended his 21-year marriage, the decisions he made. And he stopped pastoring a church that was a well-known church. And I don't want you to hear the name of the person, but I want you to hear his heart. Because he shared in this blog how he got to a spot. Now, here's a guy who's speaking at all these conferences. He's writing these books. He's preaching to his congregation. He got to a spot where he wanted his life to end, and he was researching on the internet. He said he spent two hours researching the best way to take his own life. And he shared this letter that he wrote. He did not take his own life, just so you know. But he, he did write this letter. He says, words can't express the pain that I feel for the hurt that I've caused. It's become too much to bear. Based on what I've done and the pain I've caused, I've concluded that it is safer for all those I love that I just disappear. Life without hope is death. At the end, I tried. I really, really tried. God knows that my apologies and expressions of love were real, so real. But what does that matter when the people you want so badly to believe you don't? I understand why they didn't, given my recent track record. Why would they? So when it became clear that those I love most wanted nothing to do with me, the choice I needed to make became clear. Let me pause right there and say that is a lie. I don't know what his spouse, his kids, any of the people that are in his life, but the one who loves you the most is your Father in heaven. And he doesn't give up on you. And if you're having thoughts like this, he's not done with you. You've got air in your lungs. He loves you the most. But this guy was done. He went on to express some more of his feelings, some of the ways that he failed. And he gave a final word to the church at the end. He said, one word to the church. When people screw up bad, try to help them. Do your best to sacrifice anything and everything to help them. More than likely, they screwed up bad because they need help. Don't turn your back on them. Pursue them. Something isn't right with them, and they need help. Even if they hurt you bad, do everything you can to help them. It's one of the reasons why we talk about it as a church. It's more than just this meeting we have together. We want us in relationships with one another. And then his final words, probably the most hopeless words. He says, 
talking about a suicide. It's a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. It's a far, far better rest that I go to than I've ever known. And like I said, he didn't take his life. He wrote this blog. But how does a guy get to that place who at one time was preaching about what the answers are and is now ready to take his own life? It's like Paul said, I despaired of life. There's family. I just... But what he shares in that blog is that what God was exposing were a bunch of the idols in his heart. And he actually was believing in lesser things. He, it wasn't a trust in the creator. It was in his own strength. And, his, and what God was doing at that point of failure was stripping those things away. That's a great thing. Now, I don't know what will happen in his life. I hope that he'll turn to Jesus. Because there's a path. He can go down two different paths. Because that's where God grows your faith. Terrible place. I wouldn't want any of you to be at that place. What a beautiful place because God's stripping away everything. So to that point, you realize you're totally helpless. You can't do this life. You need him for every breath. And that's where this man's at. I can't even believe without your help. And then Jesus sees that there's another crowd coming. There's already a crowd there in verse 25. When he saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you. And he's stronger than the enemy. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. So it looks like, and oftentimes this is what happens in our pain, it looks like things just went from bad to worse. But God's at work. It looks like this boy went from convulsing to dying. But then, verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Now, we don't know if he died. But if he did, Jesus rose him from the dead. And the language he uses here is actually parallel to that of Jairus' daughter that we talked about earlier in the book of Mark. But we don't know. And you know what? It doesn't even matter. That's not the point of the story. Because let me share something with you that I didn't get until this time. I told you I preached this passage multiple times. I just saw this. It's in verses 28 and 29, and it's what's not there. He, he heals this boy. He's talking to the dad. Tell me about what it's like for you. How long has he been like this? If you can do anything, help us. There's this pain. I can't even believe without you giving me the belief. And then he heals the boy. The convulsion stops. He raises him up, and we're done. We don't get a response from the boy. We don't get a response from the dad. We don't even get a response from the crowd. I'm sure they were all amazed. I'm sure the boy was thankful. I'm sure the dad was praising God. But it doesn't matter because that's not the point. The point is, verses 28 and 29, it's a lesson for disciples, for followers. And so he talks to his disciples after Jesus had gone indoors. So now we're going to go to a private spot. Most people don't like to talk about their failures in public. We're going to give the disciples some credit before we beat them up. We will beat them up. After they had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come on only by prayer. So credit for the disciples first. At least in their failure, they wanted to learn. Maybe they wanted to learn because they were prideful, and we don't want to fail in public again so you can help us save face. I don't know why, but they, at least they're being reflective. Why did we blow it? Why did we fail? Why couldn't we drive it out? And I think the answer to their question is rooted in their question. Why couldn't we drive it out? Now I'm going to beat the disciples up. Look what Jesus says next. This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, we can get caught up in some theological debate of, is this a certain kind of demon, like a special kind of demon? You have to, listen, if you're trying to cast out demons without praying, you got problems. And that's what Jesus is saying to these guys, and so let me beat them up. You tried to cast out a demon without even praying? Seriously? 
And that's why I go back to Mark chapter 6, and I think that was the reason. That was the problem. Mark chapter 6, verse 13, that verse I read you at the beginning of the message, they had success. So they were trusting in themselves. And what Jesus is talking about here when he says this kind can only come out by prayer, he's not talking about a certain kind of prayer. Go back and read his casting out this demon. Not once does it say that Jesus prayed. He's not telling them how to pray. He's not telling them what to pray. It's not because they didn't pray enough, because they only prayed for five minutes. They needed to pray for seven minutes to get this kind of demon. No, that's not it. He's talking about a spirit of dependence, and they didn't have that spirit of dependence. It's a kind of dependence and desperation. Like, I don't know if you were here last week, but our worship leader last week was John Wyatt. And John was sharing uh, how he'll pray continually when he's leading worship. And we had just sung a song about Jesus being stronger than our sin. And he said, not only do I believe that to be true, but he said, I need that to be true. That is exactly where God wants us at. That's faith. I ne- not only do I believe that you are these things that we talk about, it, but I need that to be true. That's desperation. That is dependence. That is a spirit of prayer. It's not that you're saying words continually. It's a continual dependence upon God the Father. And that was the problem for the disciples. Why couldn't we do it? You couldn't do it because you're not able. But you know the one who is. Depend upon him. And we know they don't get it because they keep failing after this. I try to imagine what it was like to be Peter. Now, Peter wasn't one of the nine guys that failed here. And I identify with Peter sometimes. And so I can imagine if I were sitting there and I were Peter and Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer, I may have thought to myself, I'd have probably prayed if I were you guys. (laughs) Just saying. Pride is an issue there. But what we see with Peter is we know he doesn't get it because not only would he might have said that in that situation, he does say that kind of thing in other situations. Think about Peter continually thinking he knows better than God. No, you're not going to the cross. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. No, no, not the, the Messiah doesn't go to the cross. <laughs> Peter, you don't have a clue. You think about later when they come to arrest Jesus and take him to the cross and he cuts a guy's ear off. It doesn't say this in the Bible, but I imagine Jesus rolls his eyes at that moment. Oh, Peter, fix this guy's ear again. You know, he heals that guy's ear. Slap that back on. But the tell-all is when Jesus says to Peter, you guys are going to deny me. I don't know. I don't care what the rest of these dudes do. I'm not denying you, Jesus. When you turn back, Peter, which is a word for repentance, when you, after you've failed, and then you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows he's patient and so kind. And then Peter denies Jesus three times. And then he's broken. And he weeps bitterly. And he feels like he can't be used. He goes back to fishing. And then Jesus comes to restore him in John chapter 21. And he asked him three times. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? What was it like to be asked the third time? You know that I love you. He said, well, feed my sheep. But then he, he, in John chapter 21, the command he gives after that, after feed my sheep is this, follow me. Where have we heard that before? Oh, back here. We said, deny yourself. You've got to come to the end of yourself and be obedient to the things I put in your life. That's what it is to follow me. But if you come to the end of yourself, now Peter's at that place. Now he can be used. What about you? Would you dare to pray for brokenness? I've asked a couple of our elders today to pray for us as we conclude the service. To pray for us corporately, that we'd be broken as a church. A church in America, Southbridge Church. Some of you need to pray that. And they're going to come up here and they're going to pray for us. The worship team's going to lead us in a song. Some of you need to be broken over your sins. Some of you maybe don't know Jesus as your Savior. And so what you need to do is admit your failure 
And that's not a big, that doesn't take any faith, by the way, because everybody's sinned. So you just say that you're a sinner is not some big confession. Everyone has sinned. Here's the faith that you believe that Jesus died for that sin and his death was adequate to pay for that sin and he gives you a gift of life and you need him to be a savior. You can't save yourself. That's the faith. Some of you need to do that today. Some of you placed your faith in Jesus, but you start trying to do it on your own. Then you need to repent. Some of you got sin you need to repent of. It's a failure, yes, but it's by faith, by grace. Don't have that grace in vain. Continue to let that grace flow into your life. And some of you just need to pray for God to take you to the end of yourself so you can walk by faith. I'm going to ask these elders to come pray. Dave, if you'd come pray. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we're just grateful for the challenges you give us from your word. We're thankful, Lord, that brokenness causes us and teaches us so many things. And Lord, as we think about brokenness and we think about those in our congregation that a husband has left his wife, a wife has left her husband. We think about people who have cancer or other type of sickness or those who have with depression. For those, Lord, married couples who live together, but yet they don't love each other. Father, we think of so many different types of of areas that hinder us and keep us from loving you the way that we should. We think of young ladies who don't feel loved or don't feel they have any friends. A different type of brokenness. Lord, we think of people who have drug addictions and alcohol addictions. And Lord, there's so many different brokennesses that we experience and that we go through and everybody has a story and everybody has a different kind of brokenness. And God, our prayer is that we would find victory in this as we look at your word and it tells us that you're close to those who are broken, that you heal people who have broken and Father we're thankful for the love that you have for us and that you've shown for us and I thank you that some 40 years ago when I accepted you as my Lord and Savior you healed my sin brokenness as you paid the penalty on the cross and Father our prayer is that we'll leave here today not feeling broken but we'll feel that we'll be utterly dependent upon you that will allow your Holy Spirit to work in our heart and in our life in a great way. When whatever the brokenness is, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to give it to you, that you would help us to depend upon you and just allow you to minister to us in just a great way that we've never been ministered before. And we pray all this according to the plan and the purpose and the direction of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father God, I disagree with my brother David, Lord. We praise that we can say the name Jesus. And Lord, when we fail greatly, whether it's emotionally or physically or sexually, historically there's something in our past, Lord, that is a great failure that binds us, Lord. I pray that you would set us free. Lord, we know that your truth is everlasting. We know that what you've done is sufficient on the cross. I pray against the principalities of darkness that would come against anyone and the body we call Southbridge. I pray for their protection, God. And I pray that when we look to you, we would see a Savior. 
a God full of grace, that in our great weakness, we find your strength. Thank you that the truth is spoken here that comes directly from the word of God. Thank you for your anointing on Scott. Thank you that we can call out to you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.